how will you fare on the judgment day? How will you fare on the judgment day? I mean, just, to, just imagine that we didn't make it to the end of our service this evening because Jesus came back before tonight ended. Would you be ready to face him as the judge of your life? And if you did, are you sure of what the outcome would be? I think most people in the world rarely consider that one day uh, this world is going to end, that they'll need to give an account to God for their lives. They're so busy with their work and studies and family and so on, maybe even preparing for Christmas, that we, we rarely stop to think that Jesus is actually coming back as our judge. Uh, we can't see God, and so sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. Still fewer people are, are sure of what will happen on that day. Uh, many people, Christians included, uh, there's a hope that everything will turn out fine in the end, but they're not really sure. They're not, they're not really, really certain. It's just kind of wishful uh, thinking. I think that was me for most of the first 20 years or so of my life. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, but I was never really sure I was saved. I constantly felt the need I need, need to earn God's favor through my actions, and I knew my failure and therefore lacked any kind of assurance. Of course, others have a kind of misplaced assurance. They're fairly sure it's going to turn out well, uh, perhaps because of some religious observance there uh, they've done or, or some religion that they're a part of, apart from Christianity, and, and they think that they're okay when actually they're in, they're in deep trouble. Well, how about us this evening? How will we fare on the judgment day? If Jesus did come back tonight, would he welcome us to heaven? Would he condemn us to hell? Well, the answer we'll see in Zephaniah is that it all depends. Uh, we saw in Zephaniah chapter 1 uh, that the great day of the Lord's wrath is drawing near. It's a, it's a dreadful day when God will judge the world. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 1 puts it this way. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Can you just turn me down a little bit, the sound person? That would be very helpful. Uh, it would be the day, verse uh, 16, when the sins of the, of the whole world would be held fully and finally to account. And, and we saw also last week that there, there's no chance of postponing this day. There's no chance of avoiding this day. It, it would be inevitable. It would be devastating. It didn't matter how much money you had and so on. In the end of chapter 1 we read, in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. A full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, in our passage today, we see that amidst all that bad news, there is some good news as well. Hope is held out to some. We're at point one then, the possibility of escape. Verse one, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. You see, the, the good news is that as awful as the coming judgment day will be, it hasn't arrived yet. And, and if it hasn't arrived yet, then that means that there is still hope of a rescue. 
Now, throughout the Bible, we see God's, God's holy character. He's, he is full of, of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a God who, who loves to forgive those who repent. He's, he's a God who longs to relent from disaster. Uh, like we, we see it uh, at Mount Sinai when, when Israel builds the golden calf and, and God forgives them. Or like when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Or, or, or like God deals with the, the Ninevites when he sends that uh, reluctant prophet Jonah to preach to them and God relents. Uh, that's, that's the God of the Bible, the God of steadfast love. Uh, not simply a, a vengeful tyrant uh, who, is, who is bent on the destruction of everyone. He is just, and so he will judge, but he longs to forgive. And so before the judgment falls, there's still hope. But Zephaniah wants uh, his people to understand that time is running out. Urgent action is required. And, and for Judah, looking back, we know just how uh, little time they had. Just a few years later, uh, Jerusalem would be overturned. Uh, and in verse 3, we see the kind of, of urgent action that is required in the face of the impending judgment of God. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So who is the one who is delivered from the Lord's wrath? It's the one who turns to him in humble trust and obedience. The one who seeks the Lord who seeks righteousness, who seeks humility. So salvation is for those who, who humbly turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, not, not thinking that they're, they're worthy of salvation and, and not thinking that God is, is somehow obligated to save them. Salvation is for those who, who, who recognize their failure and, and therefore humbly throw themselves on the mercy of God, seeking the Lord and responding in a changed life. Now notice, Zephaniah is not very certain, is he? He just says, perhaps. No, no assurance, no, no certainty. Perhaps, perhaps it's because he knows just how far Judah has already fallen, the extent of their sin, the likelihood of recovery is very slim. Or perhaps it's, it's Zephaniah taking care not to presume on the sovereign God as if God was obligated to save his people. But one thing they can be assured, and that is point two, that judgment is coming on the nations. Judgment is coming on the nations. In verses 4 to 15, Zephaniah prophesies judgment on all the surrounding nations. We have the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, and the Assyrians. Now, if you were to put all those nations on a map, and you could put up the map, uh, you would see that those nations are all around Judah to the north, to the, to, the, to the south, to the east, to the west. Some are near, some are further afield, some are mighty nations like the Assyrians, some are not. But they, they all stand together under the judgment of God. This is a global judgment. And, and note at verse 4 there, that little word, for. Right, this, this judgment on the nations is connected to what he's just said in verse 3. Uh, it is, as we understand this judgment on the nations, it is to be a motivation to humbly seek the Lord. 
Because there will be a faithful remnant of God's people who will escape the judgment. But these verses are also to be a warning on God's people of the judgment that they will face if they refuse to seek the Lord, if they continue in their proud rebellion like those nations around. And so firstly, we see in verses 4 to 15 that the total desolation that comes on the enemies of God. Verse 4, we, we, we begin with the Philistines. Those were those who, who lived over in the west by the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, verse 4 mentions some of their cities. We have Gaza, Ashkelon, e- uh, Ashdod, and Ekron. They're all Philistine cities. And the message is utter desolation. Look at verse 4. Gaza shall be deserted. Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out. Ekron shall be uprooted. And we read on into verse 5, he says, I will destroy you until there is no inhabitant left. And and verse 6 says, in place of all these cities, now they are just going to be meadows for the sheep. Because God has decreed their total destruction, utter desolation. Verses 8 to 11, we see that the Moabites and the Ammonites are going to share exactly the same fate. These were the, the cousins of Israel. Uh, They were the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. Uh, And like any relatives, they find themselves in uh, family conflicts from time to time. And so when Israel entered the promised land, it was the Moabites who insisted Israel couldn't pass through. They they had to go the long way around and and get some extra exercise. Uh, And uh, later on, they they needed to threaten God's people. Uh, They taunted God's people. Uh, And verse 8 reminds us really of how they've treated the Israelites. God says, I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. And what an encouragement for us. The sovereign Lord sees the suffering of his people. He knows when his people are mocked. He sees when his people are opposed, and God doesn't turn a blind eye to the suffering of his people. He swears in verse 9 that he's going to take action. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. In other words, they are going to be utterly and totally destroyed. Just like those those wicked cities in in the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed with fire and sulfur from heaven. And the reason given, verse 10, is their pride. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. See, they were not humble. They did not seek the Lord. Instead, they they exalted themselves against the Lord, against his people. And God declares that their pride will be humbled. Verse 11 uh, puts it this way. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. To him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. The the gods of the nations, they're going to be be famished. There's there's going to be no one left to worship them, no one left to put out the food to these idol gods. God will admit no rivals. No one will rob him of his glory. On judgment day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. As Isaiah writes in 
Isaiah chapter 2 on the screen. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. On judgment day, the pride of man is humbled. God gets the glory. Well, verse 12, the prophecy to the Cushites is short and brutal. He says to them, verse 12, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. See on the screen, Cush was Egypt, or perhaps further down, uh, Ethiopia. Uh, For Israel, this was kind of like the edge of the known world. But they too would be destroyed by God's judgment. God's global uh, desolation would, would, would reach to the very ends of the earth, even to Cush. And the rest of the chapter is dedicated to Assyria. Uh, they were the great superpower of the day. You see them there uh, to the north, Nineveh, the capital. Less than a century earlier, they had, uh, they had uh, conquered the world, uh, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And the message for them, too, is utter destruction. Verse 13, God, we read, He will stretch out His hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. So to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, God's judgment will fall. To the great and mighty, the Assyrians, to the Cushites, all will fall before the great judgment day of the Lord. Now at at the time of Assyria's greatness. Nineveh was one of the great cities of the world. It was full of grand buildings. Remember Jonah as he went to preach in Nineveh. We read in Jonah 3 that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. It was was huge. It was amazing. And look at verse 14. What will happen? God declares it will become a field. It will be a home for animals, hedgehogs and owls and the rest because it will be utterly laid bare and once again the reason is her pride. Look at verse 15. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. You remember God's name Yahweh, it meant I am. And God regularly says in the Bible, I am the Lord, there is no other. But look what, look what Assyria says, I am and there is no one else. In their proud arrogance, they, they pretend they are God, they challenge God's rule, they pretend that they are in control of their own destiny. It's, it's the arrogance of the atheist that they're in control of their own life. It's the arrogance of the idolater who will dethrone the true God and put up another God in his place, as if you can choose who the true God will be. And God declares proud Assyria in her self-security will fall, totally desolate, like a desert filled with wild animals. And in that day, no one will even mourn for her. Verse 15 says, Everyone who passes by hisses and shakes his fist. They are happy that this God-forsaken nation is no more. It's ought to remind us of 
the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, uh, unpacks that final great judgment day. And there we have Babylon, which symbolizes proud humanity in their arrogant rejection of God. And they are utterly overthrown. They are utterly desolated. Uh, Revelation 18, we, we read of the kings of the earth standing far off, fearing her torment, and say, Alas, alas, you great city, the mighty, ba- mighty city Babylon, in a single hour your judgment has come. So mighty one moment, and then utterly destroyed the next. And the next chapter, the great multitude of God's people sing. They say, hallelujah, salvation and glory, power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He's judged the great prostitute. And verse 3 again, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Here is an assurance for God's people. On judgment day, all who in arrogant pride oppose God's righteous rule, oppose God's people, they will, be, they will be destroyed. Evil will be blotted out, utterly destroyed, devastated forever, never to rise again. Now God's people will be delivered once and for all on that day of all who oppose them. We see the same idea in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 on the screen. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. See, on that day, God sets everything right. His people find relief and salvation. God's enemies are utterly destroyed. Eternal torment. Now, this ought to motivate us in our evangelism. See, if we we truly knew that all who proudly oppose the gospel, who who, who fail to obey Jesus as the Lord of their life, if we know that their, their future is eternal conscious torment in the fires of hell, then filled with grief, filled with compassion for their fate, we ought to speak before it is too late for them. But there's also a severe warning for us as God's people as well. Uh, We saw last week how complacent Judah was. Judah was the same. They were idolatrous. Judah themselves were proudly challenging the rule of God. They needed to take heed of what God was going to do to the nations. Because on Judgment Day, all the pride of man will be humbled and the wicked will be utterly destroyed. They needed to seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness before it was too late for them too. Now, while God's enemies here face total desolation, there is hope for God's people. Now, twice we are told in these verses of a, of a remnant who are going to be restored. You may have noticed I skipped verse 7. Verse 7 we read, The sequel shall become the possession 
of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. And again, verse 9, same idea. The end of the verse, the remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So there is hope for, for a remnant. Not all of Judah is going to be saved, but those faithful few who persevere in seeking the Lord in humility and obedience, there will be salvation through the judgment. There will be restoration beyond the judgment. See, the Philistines will be destroyed, and the Ammonites and the Moabites will be destroyed, and, and the Assyrians will be devastated. But there is hope for the people of God. There will be survivors from Judah who will inherit the land, a remnant. This theme of a remnant runs all the way through the Scriptures. Uh, on the screen, you might remember Joseph. Uh, he says to his brothers, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. Or in 1 Kings, we have Elijah, and God says to him, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Or in 2 Kings 19, as Assyria comes and wipes out those 10 northern tribes, Isaiah prophesies to Judah, and he says, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, bear fruit upwards, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. And so in the midst of this fierce judgment that will touch all the nations, God's faithful remnant who seek him will remain. I wonder if you noticed how that perhaps of verse 3 has now become a promise in verses 7 to 9. This is the promise of God. Verse 7, God will restore their fortunes. And verse 9, they shall plunder them and possess them. Here again is encouragement for God's people. In the face of this global impending judgment for the remnant who seek the Lord, who seek righteousness, who seek humility, there is hope beyond the judgment day. Well, in chapter 3, we see the fate of Jerusalem. At first, it sounds like a description of Nineveh. Look at verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. We need to remember that in the original, there's, there's no chapter divisions and verses. They're, they're added much later by editors to help us know which page that we're looking for. We could read on from the end of chapter 2 about Nineveh into chapter 3, and, 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 and we think that we're talking about Nineveh. They are the rebellious city. They are the oppressing city that listens to no voice. But as we read on, we realize we're not talking about Nineveh at all. Look how verse 1 ends. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. See, it's Judah who are not seeking the Lord impatient trust. In fact, they are acting just like the nations. They're just like, 
Like Nineveh, they are rebellious, they are unrighteous, they are disobedient, they are defiled, they are proud, they they refuse to listen to God's word, they are self-dependent, they refuse to draw near to God for help. And perhaps that's why Zephaniah takes a whole chapter talking about God's coming judgment on the nations. Because if if God is going to judge the pride of the nations, why should Judah escape? And if he's going to call all the wickedness of the nations to account, would he not call his own people to account? See, these oracles are meant to rouse us from our complacency. If God is going to judge other people, Will he not judge me as well if I do the same things? And if even the mighty Assyrians could not withstand the fierce judgment of the Lord, how much more Judah, filled with so much evil, how much more I if I do the same? And yet, of course, in some parts of the church, those who are meant to be God's people are filled with such wickedness that they're almost indistinguishable from the world around them. There are those who who will set aside the, the clear and infallible word of God to embrace and promote sexual immorality instead in the name of Jesus. Or in sheer greed, they will believe and preach distortions of the gospel for the sake of money. Or they will use their positions of power, not for humble sacrificial service, but to to abuse God's people sexually or emotionally or to build up their own self-esteem for their own benefit. Or or, or God's people will pursue careers and success to to such neglect of their family and their church and the good of society that they're barely distinguishable from the the non-Christian world around them. How should God feel about such things? What should God do about such things among his own people? How could such a situation exist among the people of God? I think verse 3 gives us a hint of it. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. This begins with godless leadership. Leaders who who do not humbly serve God's people, but rather want to devour them to satisfy their own desires. How many leaders of the church are like that? How should God feel about such leaders who devour his church? Verse 4, we're told of the prophets. Her prophets are, are fickle, treacherous, They're meant to be preaching the true word of God, but rather they change the word of God to please their hearers. They tell them what they want to hear. They're they're, they're treacherous men. They do this for their own self-benefit, maybe even for a price. And yet how many church leaders are the same? They find out what society wants them to preach, and then they preach that, and they change it when when society changes. They're they're treacherous. They're double-minded. They're fickle. How should God feel about such things? Or verse 4 again, her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. These people, instead of leading God's people into holiness, which is their job, do the opposite, defiling God's people. And yet how many Christian leaders have fallen into such sin that they have done exactly the same? See how it works? The, The rot of sin 
starts at the top and spreads through the whole. Where is the Lord in all this? Verse 5, well, he is still there. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust shows knows no shame. So just because his people are, are acting in such wicked ways, it doesn't mean that God is wicked. It sounds good, isn't it? God in their midst, righteous and just. But it's actually a terrible condemnation for his people. There he is every day, shining forth his righteousness on their, his, he, 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 shining forth on their evil deeds. And they don't care. They're, they're shameless. Not only are they doing evil, they're proud of it. They boast of it. Judah had every reason to be ashamed of how they'd acted as God's people. This was God's holy city. And they were just like the nations around them. They were just like Nineveh, perhaps even worse. And would God judge all the nations and ignore the sins of his own people? Surely not. But in their complacency, they'd found all manner of ways to justify their sin. We saw last week how they, they thought to themselves, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God, God doesn't really care. He's just up in heaven. He'll do nothing. And so God's people refused to heed the warning signs. They, they, they refused to take the threat of the judgment of God seriously. Verse 6, God tells them of his warnings. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Here's the warning shots, if you like, of what is coming on Judah. God destroyed Egypt when he brought his people out. He destroyed the Canaanites when he brought his people in. He wiped out the northern kingdom already at the hands of the Assyrians. And he's promised to wipe out all these other nations as well as the Babylonians rise. God's people should have reflected on all these things. They should have taken seriously God's threat of judgment that he brought to his people again and again and again. They should have sought the Lord in humility. But they didn't. Well, God says in verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. You see, the offer of salvation is there. God in his love offers forgiveness to his people with open hands. If they would but seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility, they would be restored. They'd be saved. But they will not. They reject the Lord and seek corruption Instead, verse 7, all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. What is God to do with a people like this? He declares his verdict in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations 
to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. See, a day of final reckoning is to come. A day when God will pour out his righteous anger and the wicked will get what they deserve. Destruction, desolation, distress. All the earth consumed. And God's people would not be exempt from that day. The same is true for us. We saw in in that New Testament reading from Romans chapter 2, the kind of arrogant complacency that we can have before God. What Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, take God's, we take God's love, God's, God's kindness for granted, and we continue in the very same sin that we condemn in others. And Romans 2 goes on to explain that, that God will judge all people according to his, their works. His judgment will be impartial. Uh, people will not be exempted from his judgment simply because they call themselves his people. We must beware of any form of complacency or pride. We must be, beware of thinking, I can continue in sin and it won't matter and God won't do anything. Here we are warned, God will call all people to account, including his own people. Well, let's return to where we began. How will you fare on the judgment day? Jesus was to return today. Would we be ready? Would we stand? Well, we know that all that Zephaniah prophesied has come true. In 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians, just like Zephaniah prophesied. No one would have imagined that in Zephaniah's day. But it did happen. And the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Cushites and so on, they met their fate too, just as Zephaniah prophesied. And in 587 BC, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians just as Zephaniah prophesied. It must have seemed unthinkable in Zephaniah's day. But it happened. And in 539 BC, the, the unthinkable happened again as the, the Persians defeated the Babylonians and, and King Cyrus sent the faithful remnant of Judah to go back home, restored their fortunes, rebuild Jerusalem and so on. It all happened just as Zephaniah prophesied. And yet we know that Zephaniah's prophecy would, would be fulfilled in a, in a greater way. Uh, there's an ultimate day of the Lord still yet to come. That day when Jesus will return as the judge of the world and utterly destroy evil once and for all. It might seem unthinkable to us that such a day would come. That this world will one day end. But it will happen too, just as Zephaniah 
prophesied. And this passage teaches us that in the face of that impending judgment, our only hope is to seek the Lord in humble trust. Of course, as we come to Christmas, we remember that the Lord came to save his people. The true remnant, the true Israelite, Jesus who always sought the Lord, who always sought righteousness, who always sought humility, who was, who was willing to be born in a manger, who was willing to be crucified on a cross, who would take upon himself all the burning anger of God on our sin. And as Jesus died, that would be the beginning of that great day of the Lord. As he died, the, the, the sun was turned to darkness over him because God's global judgment was being executed as he bore on himself the sins of the whole world and evil was being punished once and for all on the cross. And we know that three days later he rose again and he ascended to heaven and, he, and it's the proof that he's one day returning as the judge of the living and the dead. That great day of the Lord will come there is a day when all the pride of man will be humbled. There is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will certainly come. And so it is urgent that before that day comes that we seek the Lord, we seek righteousness, we seek humility, to stand before the judgment throne of God alone can mean nothing but utter desolation. Our only hope on that judgment day is to trust in the one who has borne that wrath for us, the one who has already made the, that perfect sacrifice for sin on our behalf. Our only hope of escaping the judgment of God is to let Jesus take that judgment in our place. It's a great hymn, Rock of Ages. The last stanza reads like this. When I saw through realms unknown bow before the judgment throne, hide me then, my refuge be, rock of ages, cleft for me. Here's the only hiding place, you see, on that day. Now, not as, we, as we seek the Lord in this humble trust, we, we no longer live in the days of perhaps. We, as Christians, we don't simply hope that everything's going to work out in the end. We can have total assurance of our salvation. We can be 100% certain that all who humbly trust in Jesus can be saved because we know that salvation depends entirely on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I want to ask you this evening, do you have assurance of being saved on the judgment day? Some of us here may not yet be Christians. And I have a good news for you this evening. Now, yes, there's a judgment day coming when God will call you to account for everything that you have ever said and done. And yes, you would be rightly condemned. But the good news is, it hasn't come yet. And if you would turn to Jesus, you'll be forgiven. 
be hidden from his wrath. But Zephaniah says it's urgent. The time's running out. Don't wait. The window won't be open forever. The deal's running out. Turn to the Lord. Some of us here will call ourselves Christians, but we, we actually lack assurance. We're not sure, really, of what will happen on that day. That's very likely because we're still trusting in our own religious works in some way, and not Jesus alone. Now, we must never be like that uh, self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18, who thought he would be okay because of his works, because maybe he was better than other people. We always must be like the tax collector. Remember what he said? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the place where where assurance is found, not depending in myself. As long as I look within to what I must do, I will never have assurance because I will never do enough. I will always fail. But here is the promise of God. If I would humbly trust him, if I would seek him, if I would sit at the foot of the cross, there I will find the assurance and the joy of knowing for certain I will be saved. See, as Christians, we do not need to fear the judgment day. Jesus has dealt with it for us already. Now, at the same time, we must never forget the warning God gives us here. And that is that simply calling yourself one of God's people does not make you exempt from the judgment of God. If we would call ourselves one of God's people and yet continue to live in proud rebellion against him like the nations about, then we should not be, have a false assurance that it's all going to turn out fine. God will humble the proud. He will judge those who claim to be his but live otherwise. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. See, our, our pride must be extinguished. Our evil must be put away. We cannot continue in sin and think that it's all going to be fine. We must seek the Lord in humble trust. We must seek righteousness. We must seek humility. So we listen to what God says and obey it. Well, how will we fare on the judgment day? If Jesus returned, would he welcome me into heaven or condemn me to hell? Hope you've seen the answer this evening. It all depends. It all depends on whether we will seek the Lord Jesus in humble trust at the foot of the cross or in our proud rebellion, we refuse. That's the choice. Let's pray.
our loving Heavenly Father. We want to thank you that we can remember this Christmas how you sent your Son into this world to save us from our sins. Lord, we want to thank you that on the cross, Jesus took that punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place. And Lord, we thank you that because of what he has done for us, we can now have the assurance and the joy of knowing that we are forgiven and knowing that we do not need to fear your judgment anymore because of what he has done for us. But Lord, we pray that you would help us never to be complacent and never to think that our sin doesn't matter. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us never to be callous to the judgment that is coming on this world. Lord, we pray that you would give us compassion and love, that we would be willing to speak these hard truths and point people to the Saviour. Lord, we thank you for the restoration that will be ours when all evil is put away forever and we can live in your presence. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.